0: Please be seated. Good morning. The kingdom of heaven is like a great feast at a table laid with a plastic tablecloth and lit by a faux Tiffany stained glass pendant lamp, you know with the fruit, surrounded by knickknacks. Gigantic, decorative wooden spoons hung over the stove, a cheap reproduction of the Last Supper. Welcome to 411 Ave in Rome, New York, my grandparents' house. <laughs> For a period of years, the whole extended family gathered there every Thanksgiving. My father used to say that no matter the weather, what the weather was in other parts of New York State, it was always snowing in Rome. You might guess, and guess correctly, that Rome was a town of Italian immigrant families. My grandparents, first generation born in the US of Southern Italian and Sicilian immigrants, respectively, met in high school and married in 1948. By the time I showed up, they had raised five children in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom house having left the family farmstead, my grandmother, and grocery store with barrels of homemade wine in the basement, my grandfather. In their house, frames on the mantelpiece multiplied with our school photos. The house was noisy and full, someone always arriving, kicking the snow and salt off their boots. Eventually, we'd all cram around that kitchen table, adult children and grandchildren, spouses and babies, and the food. New York Times columnist Frank Bruni, fellow Italian-American, describes his family thanksgivings similarly in a column from 2014. He writes, there's stuffing from inside the bird as well as stuffing from outside. One casserole of sweet potatoes has marshmallows on top, the other dispenses with that sugary hood." Someone might like a particular version best, so it must be there, along with the yams. And each alternative must exist in a quantity that would be sufficient if everyone decided at the last minute to eat it and only it. (laughs) And pasta must appear at some point. We're Italian and we have a duty. At our Thanksgiving, my grandmother made the bird, but my grandfather made the meatballs and macaroni, as well as two different kinds of eggplant parm because one son liked it rolled and another son liked it flat. He made an enormous quantity of sauce, starting by frying sausage in the bottom of the pot. There was no written recipe. Years later, I stood in that kitchen with my youngest uncle and made him recite the procedure to me while we awaited the arrival of my grandfather's hospice bed. Back when I was a kid at the house for Thanksgiving, people spent all day eating, even before the feast. Uh, Stelladoro cookies with coffee in the morning, cold cuts for lunch, and antipast while we waited for the sauce to cook. Whenever someone got up from the conversation or the TV or the card game, Grandpa deputized them to keep the sauce from scorching in the pot. Elizabeth, he'd say when I passed him, go stir the sauce, don't forget to touch bottom. Moreover, because so many of us had fall birthdays, there was some adult agreement among aunts and uncles to wait until Thanksgiving to give the cousins our birthday gifts. So the following day was yet another feast, this time replete with sheet cake and ice cream and mounds of birthday gifts. Truly, I tell you, the kingdom of heaven is like this. (laughs) Stories of feasts populate most of today's lectionary. Isaiah's even got a specific menu. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. In Psalm 23, a familiar comfort, God lays a table for the psalmist just as my grandmother might. And then we come to the gospel. Gospel. Nathan warned us about Matthew last Sunday, and Matthew delivers again the kind of distasteful violence no preacher wishes to have to explain. In fact, there is a much kinder version of this story in Luke that echoes the Isaiah reading. Luke describes Jesus telling the parable right in the midst of dinner, as if the idea had just occurred to him. A man gave a great banquet, he says, and goes on from there. In that version, everyone's included in the banquet by the end, even the disabled and downtrodden, and they all live happily ever after in the kingdom of heaven. But we are in lectionary year A, my friends, and in year A, we get Matthew's gospel, which is deeply violent. Just as last week here, we heard reports of violence upon violence. Now again, another death of the eldest son, the powerful killing not just individuals this time, but a whole city. And then just when it seems that all will be welcome at the banquet after all, the king tosses out an unsuspecting guest simply for wearing the wrong clothing. He is thrown into the outer darkness where, scripture tells us, men will weep and gnash their teeth. The Irish poet, oh sorry, I suspect that many of us have witnessed or experienced that outer darkness this week. Hearing the news from the Middle East. The obscene stories of murder and hostage-taking, accounts of violence upon violence, children suffering, people fleeing for their lives without a safe refuge. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Irish poet William Butler Yeats himself, no stranger to entrenched disputes over land, sovereignty, and religious identity, wrote a poem in 1931 that ends with this third stanza. Out of Ireland have we come. Great hatred, little room, maimed us at the start. I carry from my mother's womb a fanatic heart. The speaker of Yeats's poem reminds us that reason alone is helpless against such a conflict, that nothing can stanch the wound of inherited loss. Great hatred, little room, The Bible is no stranger to stories of neighbor killing neighbor, brother turning on brother, each convinced that their cause is in the right. And while we in this room are lucky that we do not have to fear the bombs and physical violence of this particular war, we still expose our fanatic hearts on the internet or with our friends, claiming sides, accusing each other of inhumanity, of close-mindedness, And worse, we too commit violence in our pain using language that shuts out compassion. Yeats's poem is titled, after all, Remorse for Intemperate Speech. Great hatred, little room. Those screens are very little rooms indeed. The intemperate speech, so great. And while it's tempting for me, to remember my own family feasts as an Italian-style Norman Rockwell painting, a fresco, perhaps, I know that it's not that simple. The whole gathering was predicated on Thanksgiving, a holiday of conflict and sovereignty that I feel less and less comfortable celebrating. And just like Matthew's gospel is preoccupied with who is invited and who doesn't offer the proper respect, rispetto as we used to say, to show up to the banquet, The people around our dinner were also under years of scrutiny by each other. Divorce and extreme depression disappeared some from that table. For others, small slights soured to years of grudges. When, after dinner, the parade of extended family visitors came through to visit, they never included my great-aunt Lena or my great-aunt Eleanor both shunned for marriages that weren't approved of by their fathers and brothers. A financial dispute over one brother's meager estate, then over a sister's, left silence and rancor on each respective side. Such a rift lasted in one case into the outer darkness of Alzheimer's where it could never be healed. Even among my father's generation, The quick silver cut of a repeated wisecrack, familiar wounds pressed, pressed, embittered some of us to those gatherings from year to year. When the space between us measures so little, it's all the more important to know who's in and who's out, whose star is ascendant, who God loves the best. Great hatred, little room. Like the writers of Matthew's gospel, we often consider ourselves equipped to judge who's in and who's out, even if the slight is as petty as wearing the wrong clothes or showing support for the wrong side, or, in my great-grandfather's case, sending the invitation to your child's wedding through the mail instead of personally walking across the street to present it to your elder brother in person. So how can we, frail and bitter humans, maimed at the start, as Yeats says, imagine a heavenly feast? Perhaps we might start in a wood-paneled banquet hall on a Wednesday afternoon. Guests at round tables with centerpieces blooming altar flowers from the Sunday before. A piano thumps away at show tunes or torch songs, and red-aproned people flit in and out of doors, clanking plates. Over it all, the sun streams in through leaded windows, past cultivated splatters of acrylic on canvases and portraits of two little dour deans. Many there are smelly or suffering, out of luck, under the thumb of addiction, the good and the bad, as Matthew would say. Or can we get a glimpse of that feast on Sunday mornings at this table? We meet here every week to try to imagine it, a feast without anxious grudges, where the presence of another of God's children doesn't make us feel slighted, where we are wanted and loved and safe. When I find myself jostling for my own space, I hear my grandmother's voice. Don't get nervous, she'd say, and then she'd offer, for the millionth time, something to eat. There was a Eucharist here yesterday, a formal high Episcopal funeral for Father Roy Coulter with all the smells and bells. He was a one-time dean of the cathedral. I only met Father Roy once or twice, but I was taught by someone he mentored. You might call me his second generation of ministers. Once, when I told my mentor priest that I was nervous about a sermon, she told me what Roy had told her. If they don't like what they hear, Roy said, at least they'll get a good meal. Amen.